Okay, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 3. We're finishing up Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Been in a series through the book of Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 3, um, last week we looked at, uh, continued looking at ministry of John the Baptist and, and uh, his baptism and what it was about for the remission of sin, he says, and his message was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not a lot of... Uh, frills, not a lot of uh, extra stuff to his message. He got right to the point. And if you just look back with me uh, quickly, I mean, uh, in uh, uh, what, what John said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are the religious leaders of the day, he called them a brood of vipers. And uh, they thought they should just be kind of uh, part of God's plan because they're from a religious background. And uh, this is really hot, so I don't know if this is hot. Mike's hot. Um, and I don't know if, you know, when they, they approached John, they thought somehow that he would uh, uh, be blessed by their presence or what. Religious people a lot of times are that way. They think that, uh, you know, because they're there that they're going to instill some special blessing on somebody. And, um, uh, but they had it all wrong, and John confronted them about that and uh, basically read them the riot act. And you can read that on your own down through uh, verse 12. And we, we covered that. And uh, this morning we just want to look at verses 13 to 17. And you can read along there in your Bibles as I read it for us. Uh, then Jesus, in verse 13, came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're the one coming to me? Verse 15, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Verse 16, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew the king's ancestry in, in chapter 1. We went through the genealogy. We saw his birth his, his, when, he, when he came on the scene, um, how they adored him. The Magi visited him, gave him gifts. We saw the, the announcement in, in kind of verses 1 to 12 there from John the Baptist, who was the one who was to follow before or to come before Christ as a heralder and let everybody know that... Um, here is the, the uh, uh, Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And now we see, basically, the last part of this chapter deals with, uh, some call it the coronation, some call it the crowning. Um, basically, it's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry right here. Before this, you know, a lot of people, I was asked, talking to my brother the other day, and he said, why don't we know a lot about Jesus' Um, childhood. You know, there's just nothing really in Scripture that much about it other than, you know, we went to the temple to teach and some generic things, but there's not a lot of detail. You think that for 30 years of his life, he must have been doing something. And there's a lot of extra biblical information that lends us to believe certain things, but some of that's even on shaky ground. But God didn't give direct revelation about his childhood to us other than the things that we already know in Scripture, that he grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with all men and all those things. But there's not a day-to-day -day, uh, accounting of his life. You would think that almost like a president, you know, whatever the president does every day is written down. I mean, it's just recorded. 
whether it's in the newspaper, whether it's even in the White House, they have an agenda, they have a thing, and you can go, what was President Nixon doing on, you know, and you can give them a date, and they can probably research it and tell you, here's what he did, he got up at this time, and here's what, you know, you could, we could, you could research it. We don't have that kind of information when it comes to the childhood of Christ, or the early life of Christ. And I think there's a good reason for that, because it wasn't important. It wasn't important to what his ultimate goal was. You know, we would get so caught up with the minutia of Jesus' life, it would be neat to have a book that said, oh, you know, here's what he did every day. I mean, can you imagine? He was the Son of God. He was completely God in every way. It'd be fun to read what Jesus did every day on a daily basis when he was 10. <laughs> you know, I mean, because he never sinned. So he never did anything wrong. And yet he was completely human. He got hungry. He sweat. You know, I had to go to the bathroom, all those things. We don't think of Jesus that way, but he was completely human that way. And yet he was fully God. And so here we come to the point where it kind of picks up. We have his birth, and then all of a sudden there's this big lapse, and now we see Jesus at 30-some years of age probably, and he's beginning his public ministry. For the first time, the Lord Jesus Christ comes fully onto the stage of the gospel story as a man, as God. And here's where his ministry and his work really began. And everything before that is just kind of like, you know, it's under water under the bridge. It's not really that important. Um, but here, John is crying out and he's saying, is one, a voice crying in the wilderness, you know, I need to prepare the way for the king, for the Messiah. And as he did that, here comes Jesus, who was... The, the gift of God to mankind. Now, the first thing we see here in verses 13 to 15, we see that Jesus came to John for what? For baptism, right? That creates a problem in a lot of people's minds because John's baptism was a baptism of what? Of repentance from sin. That's what his baptism was all about. That's why when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him, he refused to baptize them. He said, there's no way I'm going to baptize you guys. You guys haven't repented of your sin. You think you're righteous, but really you're not. You're a brood of vipers. And so he wouldn't baptize them. And so we see some details about the baptism of Christ, and we see some details that lend us some significance to it. Now you notice there in verse 13, we don't know what time. It just says, then Jesus arrived. We don't know the time period here. We don't know the precise length of John's ministry. According to the Gospel of Luke, he began preaching in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah and Herod was over uh, Galilee. But for the most part, we, we don't have much time frame here to deal with. And so the best assumption is that it, some commentators say it occurred around 30, 29 A.D., And John's ministry basically began before maybe a month, maybe a year before Jesus' baptism. So he's out there baptizing people for the re repentance of sin, telling them to repent, the kingdom of God, you need to be baptized. And remember, baptism wasn't something that was foreign to the Jewish mindset. When someone wanted to come from their pagan religion or a Gentile wanted to become Jewish, one of the things they had to go through was the rite of baptism, they, which was a sign that they left everything behind and now they're fully kind of embraced in the Jewish faith. They use that as a sign. Well, same thing today that we use baptism for. 
But John probably continued to preach for a while after he baptized Jesus. Uh, we know that John was six months older than Jesus because you read through the Gospel accounts and, and Elizabeth and Mary when they had their children. Um, and Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was probably around 30. You know, uh, But for the most part, we don't have a, a detailed timeline here. And it's really not that important. But most people would start their ministry age, the priests and all that, they would start at around 30 years of age. So let's just say Jesus was, was 30 for the sake of argument. Because we really don't know one way or the other, but it's around there. Now it says that he arrived from Galilee at Jordan. And you notice that he didn't come to a private ceremony. It wasn't something that Jesus, John said, oh yeah, Jesus is coming, you know, i gotta, I got to go back here and set up a special place just for him to be baptized. Um, in Luke 3.21 it says, Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus was also baptized. So he was baptized as all these other folks were being baptized as well. He didn't have some kind of a private uh, you know, ceremony, some secret anointing like uh, David had when he became king. It was a private ceremony. No, he, he had an open public beginning of his ministry. It says that he arrived from Galilee, specifically Nazareth, and uh, he came to see John, specifically. Now, if the Son of God came to see me specifically, I definitely want to know about it ahead of time. <laughs> you know, it's like when you have people coming over to your house. You know, you want to know they're coming over. You know, if people just drop in, you know, who knows what the house is going to be like. But, you know, it's okay, you can do that, but I'm just telling you ahead of time, who knows what the house is going to look like. But, you know, if you call and say, hey, you know, let's get together for lunch. Yeah, come on over. Now, hopefully the house is going to be in some semblance of order. You know, we're going to clean the bathroom and whatever you usually do, you know. It's funny because it's, you know, there's certain things that you, you just kind of check off, you know, in your list when, when, you, when you have somebody coming to visit. Well, John didn't have that opportunity. And you know what else? There was no family members present with Jesus. Nobody accompanied him. He just came by himself. He hadn't called the disciples yet. We don't know really where he was baptized in the Jordan River. I'm sure if you go over there, there's a lot of different places that say that's where it was, but we really don't know. Probably during, somewhere in the southern end is where they used to do a lot of that, near Jericho or the Dead Sea, something like that. But, but for the most part, it says Bethany beyond the Jordan. But we don't know exactly where. And once again, I think it's God's providence that we don't know it because everybody would turn it into a shrine. But we know that from John's greeting to Jesus that he recognized him immediately. He knew exactly who it was. I mean, they were cousins, so I mean, why wouldn't they? But it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him. John tried to prevent him from baptizing. Now, if you, you remember, who else tried to prevent Jesus from doing something? Peter, remember? You know, and he got the old get thee behind me Satan uh, deal. So, you know, uh, but that's not the spirit in which John is approaching Jesus. Okay, he's not telling him what to do. It's more of a spirit of, wait a minute, I, you got this wrong. You know, um, this is somehow turned around. You're coming to me to be baptized? You're the son of God, the Messiah, the king? 
the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, and you're coming to me, sinful John, to be baptized? It shows the humility that John had. I mean, this guy had an incredible ministry. There were thousands of people flocking to hear him preach. He was a prophet, and he was able to, to, to preach and, 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 and baptize people for the remission of their sin, it says, as they repented. But John saw the Son of God coming. He didn't look at it and say, oh, here comes a celebrity. Boy, this will draw more crowds. This is great. Like some do today. You know, it troubles me. Sometimes somebody, quote, comes to Christ and, and they're supposedly saved. And the first place you see them is on, you know, TDN or one of those networks. And they're brand new in the Lord. And they end up saying some things that are almost embarrassing. Um, you know, because they're, they're, if they are truly saved, they truly are converted, they say some things that are just uh, are almost ignorant of what Scripture says. And that's always a bad thing. It'd be like somebody coming to Christ and saying, okay, hey, now you're going to lead worship. <laughs> or now you're going to preach on Sunday mornings. Or now you're going to do the fellowship time. Or now you, you know, you're just going to get plugged right into ministry. I mean, somewhere along the line you should get plugged into ministry. But when you first come to Christ, you need some time to grow doesn't mean you can't serve, but as far as ministry is concerned, you need some time to grow and to get your grips around your newfound faith and let God mature you a little bit. Sometimes when people come to Christ, we're too quick to just kind of throw them out there. We need to make sure that we protect them somewhat. But Jesus came to John, and he came for one reason. He didn't come to have small talk. He didn't come to, you know, hey, how's it going, John? You know, I'm getting ready to kick off my big ministry. And, no, they didn't, they didn't talk any about that. It says specifically to be baptized by him. That's what it says at the end of verse 13. And it emphasizes, the language in the original emphasizes the purpose. He didn't come for a visit. He came to be baptized. That was his sole reason. But when John looked at it, he thought, this is unthinkable. There's no way I'm going to baptize the Son of God. He not only knew Jesus' human identity, but I think, at this point even, he knew his divine identity. In John 29, 29, it says that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Why would he say that if he didn't know who he was? John knew that this man, Jesus, was, was God's own appointed Messiah. And he came to fulfill the whole redemptive process that John has been preaching about here. And John the Baptist's first reaction to Jesus was, you know what? I have need to be baptized by you. I can't baptize you. I mean, you're, you're perfect in every way. You're sinless. This is a, a baptism for the repentance of sin. Remember, his baptism was for the confession and the repentance of sin. And John the Baptist had need of that in his own life. He wasn't standing up there baptizing people saying, I'm more righteous than you. He was saying, no, we all need to go through this. John's baptism was for those who turned from their sin and thereby became fit for the arrival of the great king. That's, that's what his baptism was all about. Well, then why would a sinless king want to be baptized? if that's the purpose of this baptism. There's a lot of different books that tell us different stories about it, but we really... One's called the, the Gospel According to the Hebrews. It's an apocryphal book, which means it's not included in Scripture. But it says in that book, the writer suggests that Jesus asked for baptism because his mother and his uh, brothers wanted 
him to. And here's what it says. It's kind of interesting. It says, Behold, the mother of the Lord and his brethren said to him, John the, baptize, the Baptist baptizes for the remission of sins. Let us go and be baptized by him. But he said to them, What sin have I committed that I should go and be baptized by him? Except, perchance, this very thing that I have said in ignorance. That's why I'm saying it's not a legitimate writing. Because Jesus never did anything. I don't think Jesus ever second-guessed himself. He never said, well, I don't think I've sinned. No, he knew he didn't sin. He was God in every way. So there's different accounts like that. But, you know, they're irrelevant because they're not from Scripture. And see, at his baptism, there was a strong, at that time in that culture, there was a very strong Gnostic view that basically anything physical was sinful. If you had a physical body, then you were a sinner. So when Jesus came and he said, hey, you know, I, I've come and I've taken on humanity, but I'm still God, that didn't compute to those folks. Because they were looking at Jesus' body and saying, hey, he has a body much like ours. And if he has a body much like ours, he has to be a sinner just like us. And so they were kind of a, a problem uh, segment of society because they didn't embrace the deity of Christ until at his baptism. Then they said, well, when they saw the, the Spirit descending like a dove, they said all of a sudden Jesus took on this deity. It wasn't deity before, but now all of a sudden he took it on. And his baptism was, was uh, necessary to purify him and make him suitable to receive this divine calling from God, which is a pure lie, but that's what they believed. They had a hard time believing that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. They, they couldn't compute that. So they made up all sorts of stories. But here's John the Baptist. He was fully aware of who Jesus was. And it says that he tried to prevent him from being baptized. It suggests a continued effort from John. He just didn't say, no, Jesus, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> he didn't just say it once. He said it over and over. It was a continuous conversation they were having. He kept trying to prevent him from, from being baptized by him. And it's, it's intensified. It was a, probably an intense conversation they had. It has the idea, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Almost like, what are you thinking? That's the emphasis of the language. Now, he didn't directly contradict Jesus like Peter did. <laughs> but he thought somehow he misunderstood what Jesus was communicating to him because it just didn't make sense. He couldn't possibly mean that I'm supposed to baptize the Son of God. And it's interesting because when you stop and you look at it, John resisted baptizing Jesus for exactly the opposite reason that he resisted baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not interesting. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John the Baptist and said, hey, we want to get baptized. And what did he say? You brood of vipers. You know, there's no way I'm going to baptize you. Why? Because they hadn't repented from their sin. It was very obvious. Their lives were full of sin. And yet they thought themselves to be righteous. So John said, uh-uh. I'm not having anything to do with that. But then Jesus comes to him, who's pure, who's sinless, who's never committed any sin, 
And John <laughs> refuses to baptize him for exactly the opposite reason. Because it wouldn't be appropriate. Here's Jesus. He's a sinless one. He's perfect. It was really a testimony of Jesus' deity. He said that He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why would one who takes away sin submit himself to a ceremony that represents confession and repentance of sin? That didn't make any sense. And so John's attempt to prevent Jesus from being baptized is really a, a testimony of Jesus' what? Sin, sinlessness. His, his perfect deity. Now, even though Jesus said that John the Baptist is, uh, there's nobody that's arisen basically greater than him. That's what Jesus' own testimony about John the Baptist, what he said. He said, there's not a man on earth that has, is greater than this man, speaking of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist knew that he wasn't sinless. He knew that. That's why he said, I have need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? Jesus, what? This is like backwards. He's kind of saying, you know, I'm only a prophet of God. I'm sinful like everybody else whom I baptize. But you're the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're sinless in every way. You're not a sinner. Why then do you want me to baptize you? See, his knowledge of the one who stood before him was a knowledge that said this man has no sin, that this man is perfect in every way. And yet, the interesting thing is that the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way that we are. Every way. And yet, without sin. So, don't think that Jesus is some you know guy that comes down, takes on a body, but he's God, so he can't relate to us. Because, brothers and sisters, he can relate to us more than anybody. He knows exactly what we're going through when we're going through it because he's been through it. He's been through it. That's the whole reason he came down here. To die for the sins of the world. To take on a human body so that kind of close the gap. And sometimes we think of Jesus is somebody who just he just went around walking on water all the time and you know he never sweat he never was hungry he woke up and every little perfect hair was in its perfect little spot he didn't have morning breath never brushed his teeth didn't matter because he was God he was perfect in every way didn't wear deodorant nothing I mean you know never had took a shower it was just but that's not true because Jesus was human like you and I are human if you cut Jesus he would bleed and you know Jesus wept. And, you know, he sweat. I'm sure sometimes his feet stunk. You know, I mean, we, we, we fail to think of Jesus in that light. Because that's not how he is today. He's glorified. But there was a time when he was on earth and he very much identified with what we go through on, a, on an everyday basis. You look at the rejection that he endured. And then you go back and you... You look at the problems you're having at work or in your family or, or in your marriage or with your children or whatever. I mean, they seem small to what Jesus went through. They really do. When you put everything in perspective. So even when John was 
kind of arguing with Jesus, let's say, reluctant to baptize Christ, he was still heralding the message that, hey, this is the Messiah. Even with his reluctance to baptize him, he was still testifying that he was a perfect sacrifice. Now, some people say, well, the reason Jesus got baptized is because it was an initial uh, right. Uh, you had to have this done to become a priest. Or, um, you know, others say that it was an endorsement of John's authority. Other people believe that it was in, the Lord intended uh, baptism to kind of vicariously, uh, he was baptized for all the sins of the world. All those things are wrong. It doesn't say that. Um, Jesus tells us here why he needed to be baptized. If we just look in the scripture, uh, Jesus himself explained to John. He just didn't say, hey, don't worry about it. No, Jesus explained to him. And in his first recorded words since the age of 12, when he told his parents, did you not know that I was in my father's house? Jesus said this, permit it at this time, John. For in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't deny that he was superior to John spiritually. Obviously, he was. He was the Son of God. And he didn't deny that he was sinless. Obviously, he's testifying to that. But he says, permit it at this time. In other words, what may seem not appropriate at this time, we need to allow this to happen because there's, there's, a, there's a greater good here that's going to take place, John. You're not seeing the whole picture. Jesus understood John's reluctance. And he knew that it came from a, a spiritual commitment and, and sincerity. He wasn't being smart with Jesus. He wasn't trying to trick him like some of the other people did. He was truly reluctant to do this. But when he gave permission to John to do it, he did it. He did what the Savior requested. And he assured the prophet that it was fitting. Um, you know... And he went on to explain that, 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 that to John that his baptism was important for both of their ministries. Because he says there, why do you do it? So that we may, for us to fulfill all righteousness. He didn't say, for me to fulfill all righteousness. He said, no, John, you and I are in this together. We need to fulfill all righteousness. Because see, God had a plan. And his plan needed to be carried out. It was necessary for Jesus to be baptized and to be baptized specifically by John. It seems that one reason Jesus submitted to baptism was to give an example of obedience to his followers. As the king of kings recognized that he had no ultimate obligation, even when you stop and think about it, even when it concerned taxes. Remember when the disciples were all concerned, well, who do we pay the taxes and all that stuff? Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm God, I don't have to pay taxes. He didn't say that at all. He said, you know what, I understand in, in Matthew 17, we'll get into this when, he, when, he get, when we get there. But Jesus replied, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, from strangers, Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt. In other words, we are exempt from this tax thing. But you know what? He ends and he says this, lest we give them offense, give them a coin for you and me. So Jesus understood about this baptism thing. It wasn't something that he needed to repent of. That's not why he got baptized. But there was a greater good here. He was laying down an example. And Scripture makes it clear that in many places it's proper and it's even right 
for believers, even though they're sons of God, we belong to a different kingdom, we don't belong to this kingdom, that we're supposed to honor, we're supposed to pay taxes to human governments for their protection. You may say, well, they're not doing a very good job. Well, that's irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. In every case, Jesus modeled obedience. That's what he modeled for us. And his baptism is really Jesus acknowledging that John's standard of righteousness really was correct. And Jesus came into the world to identify with us as mankind, to identify with us. And to identify with us, he had to be identified somehow, in some form, with sin. As hard as that is for us to comprehend. See, he could not purchase righteousness for mankind if he did not identify with mankind's sin. Wouldn't have made any sense. Somehow, there had to be an identification. There had to be a link. In Isaiah 53, 12, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ even was on the scene, he said this, The Messiah was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. See, Jesus' baptism represented the willing identification of the sinless Son of God with the sinful people that he came to save. It was an identification. It was the first act of his ministry. It was the first step in the redemptive plan that he came to fulfill. He who never committed any sin took his place among those who had no righteousness whatsoever and committed all sorts of sin. He who was without sin submitted himself to a baptism for sinners. Interesting. And in this act, the Savior of the world took his place among the sinners of the world. Romans 8.3 says that this sinless friend of sinners was sent by the Father, and it says this, In the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who made, uh, That he made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, there was no other way to fulfill this righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism not only was a symbol of his identity with sinners, but it was also a symbol of his death, his resurrection. And really a kind of a model for Christian baptism. It's interesting that Jesus in his life, in the scriptures as were recorded, there's only two other references to personal baptism. Concerning Jesus. And each one relates to his death. <laughs> In Luke 12, 5, 12.50 it says this. Uh, before his final trip to Jerusalem. He told his disciples. I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What was he talking about? He was talking about his death. And on another occasion he was responding to a request by James and John. That they be given the. Remember they were arguing over who's going to have the top positions in heaven. Remember that? And he said this, You don't even know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized? He said that in, John, or in Mark 10.38. See, Jesus' identification with sinners was His taking their sin upon Himself, which He did at Calvary. 
And obviously, John could not have comprehended all that. There's no way. But you know what? He accepted his Lord's word for what it was worth. And he said, the Scripture says there that then he permitted him. Yeah, I will baptize you. He laid down an example for us. In verse 16, it says, After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. And he, and you see the, the, uh, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. See, John's baptism and that of Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry even represented a cleansing or a washing from sin. That's what it represented. Christian baptism, on the other hand, represents an identification. That's what you're doing. When you're baptized in, in believer's baptism, you're, you're baptized in the name of Christ. You're baptized so that you can identify with Christ's death and His resurrection. That's why you go down into the water and you come back up. Just like Jesus went down into the grave and He came back up. It's a perfect picture. In both cases, the significance of the act is lost if it doesn't involve what? Putting someone in the ground. How can they be buried if they're not buried? How can someone be baptized if they're not immersed? And over and over again, that's what that word means. And I mean, just to give you a little... History on this, the Greek word baptizo literally means to dip an object into water or liquid. Not to have the liquid put on the object. It never means that. It never means, you know, that you can take some water and here, I baptize you. It doesn't mean that. And I know people do that and I'm not going to get caught up on all that. But biblically, I have to say it's wrong. It's wrong. I mean, from the very beginnings of the word baptizo and baptize and all that, you know, it means immersed. As a matter of fact, if we would have used that word, which probably should have, instead of baptism, then Jesus was immersed in the water, we wouldn't even have an argument today within the church about how to baptize. But whenever that word is used in other, other ways, it's always to put something into water. Where the rich man in Hades asked Lazarus that he might dip the finger, tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. That's that word, to dip it into, to put it into the water. Where Jesus dipped the morsel, you know, at the, the Last Supper there, it was to put it into. He didn't lay it on top of it. And he didn't take the stuff and sprinkle it on the bread. That's not what he did. And the Christian church really knew no other form but immersion until the Middle Ages, which is interesting when the practice of sprinkling or pouring was introduced by, guess who? The Roman Catholic Church. Which itself, is interesting, prior to that time, always baptized by immersion. They always baptized by immersion. The theologian, Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas said this, in immersion... The setting forth of the burial of Christ is more plainly expressed, in which this manner of baptizing is more commendable. That's a Catholic theologian speaking. The Catholic Church didn't recognize other modes of baptism until the Council of Ravenna in France in 1311. 
and it was from the Catholic Church that the Lutheran Church and some of the Reformed churches inherit this form of sprinkling or pouring when it comes to baptism. The Church of England didn't even practice it until 1645 as far as uh, sprinkling. They always immersed. The Eastern Orthodox Church has never permitted any mode but immersion. And it says right in the text here, it doesn't say that you know John dipped down some water and he sprinkled it on Jesus' head. He didn't say that. It says that Jesus, what? Went up immediately from the water, which indicates that he had been all the way in the water. John was baptizing where? In the Jordan. Not alongside the Jordan. In the Jordan. And his custom was to baptize, John 3.23 says, where there was much water. Why? Because they had to dunk these folks. What says, at that moment, when Jesus came out of the river... The text says, Behold, the heavens were opened. You know, Ezekiel saw the heavens opened, and he had the vision of God. He saw all sorts of weird things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he did. Four living creatures, chariot and the wheels and all that. I mean, just read through the book of Ezekiel, and your mind just spins like, what's this guy talking about? It's amazing what he saw. Just before he died, Stephen saw the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a picture, right before you die, you see that. John the Apostle had several heavenly visions in Revelation. Paul even was caught up into the third heaven. And it says in 2 Corinthians 12 that it was such an incredible sight he saw, it was inexpressible. He couldn't even express what he saw. One commentator wrote this, Just as the veil of the temple was rent in, in two to symbolize the perfect access of all men to God, so here the heavens are rent asunder to show how near God is to Jesus and Jesus to God. Because they're one and the same. And when the heavens opened up before John the Baptist, it says that he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, just as the Lord had promised. See, this was the confirming sign this dove, it's the only instance in which the Holy Spirit is ever represented. And it doesn't say the Holy Spirit is a dove, it says it was like a dove. To the Jewish mind of the day, the, the dove associated with sacrifice, because remember when we were going through Leviticus, a lot of the, the, the richer people were able to sacrifice lambs and such, but you know what, the poor people, what were they allowed to sacrifice? They could bring a dove. If they could only afford a dove, then... They could bring a dove. So the idea of sacrifice and dove went hand in hand. Well, why did the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus? Did he not have, was he not God before this? Or, you know, you can think of a lot of different theological things that are going on in people's minds. We know that when he became a man, Jesus didn't lose his divinity. He was still God. He was still fully God in every way. And his deity, he needed nothing. See, but his humanity, beloved, was being anointed for service here. And he was granted strength for ministry in his humanity, not in his deity. The Spirit anointed him for his kingly service, as Isaiah predicted. Among other things, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus in his humanness in a special way. 
that empowered him to do a lot of different things. He cast out demons. He did miraculous signs and wonders. He, he was preaching. But like every other human being, Jesus became tired. He became hungry. He became sleepy. Yet he was fully God. Jesus' anointing with the Holy Spirit was very, very unique. It gave him power in his humanness. But it was also given as a visible, I think, confirming sign to John the Baptist and to everybody else that was watching this take place because there was a lot of people there. That Jesus Christ was exactly who he was going to claim to be. That he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the great King who was coming. Who John had just announced. Comes up out of the water, you see the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And then look at what happens. That's not it. The show's not over yet. It says in verse 17, And suddenly a voice came from heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a voice from heaven. I've never heard a voice from heaven. But I can only imagine what it would sound like. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing. What's interesting here is you see all three parts of the Trinity participating in the baptism of Jesus. You have the Son who confirmed His own kingship by saying it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You have the Spirit who confirmed His right to the Messiah by resting on Him like a dove. And now the final act of, of this coronation or this crowning of the Son of God is confirmation by the Father. And He said, this is My beloved Son. And look at what He says, in whom I am well pleased. See, for a sacrifice to be acceptable to God, it has to be what? It has to be pure. It has to be pure. It has to be spotless. It has to be without blemish. And of this one who willingly identified himself with sinners by his baptism, and who is now marked by the Holy Spirit as this dove descends upon him, he's marked for sacrifice. And now you see the Father saying, you know what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know what? No Old Testament sacrifice ever, no matter how careful they were to select it, no matter how careful they were to select these things, had ever been truly pleasing to God. Ever. Because there was no perfect sacrifice. It was impossible to find an animal that didn't have a, some form of blemish, some form of imperfection. So they kind of went with the, you know, well, this one's not as bad as that one, so we'll give you, get that one. You know, this one's got two eyes. You know, that one's only got one, so we'll take the one with two eyes. I mean, that's really what it was. It was impossible to find a perfect animal. And not only that, but the blood of those animals was only symbolic. Hebrews 10.4 says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I mean, I bet you those priests wish that they would have understood that when they were doing all this. You know, they had to go into the temple daily and sacrifice and blood was everywhere. And yet, Scripture says that didn't do any good. I mean, could you ever go through a... Could you ever do something at work or something? Maybe you have to go through a task and you get at the end and your boss says, you know, that was just... You know, that's just to see how you did. It doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's kind of frustration there. Well, these priests had to sacrifice over and over and over again. But it didn't please God. It was just meant as a symbolic. But the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross... First Peter 1.19 says, With his 
precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Therefore, God could say, I am well pleased with my son because he's the perfect sacrifice. And he says there, not just son, but beloved. That word really speaks of a deep, rich, profound relationship that God has with His Son that boggles my mind. I don't understand it. But you know what? That same word is used for us as believers. In Romans 1.7, he, he calls us beloved. God calls us beloved. Not only His Son, but He calls us believers His beloved. And it's, it's amazing to me to think that we can have the same relationship that the Son of God has with His Father. We can have that same relationship. In Romans 1.7 it says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Do you ever think of yourself as being beloved of God? I mean, Jesus is the Father's beloved above all He loves. The beloved apart from whom no other could ever be beloved. And you know what? In His Son, in Jesus Christ, that's the only way that the Father can be well pleased. That's the only way the Father can look at us as beloved sons and daughters. God had examined His beloved Son who would offer Himself as a sacrifice for the sins of those who He's going to die for. And no perfection was found in Him. And that was a delight to God's heart. But you know what? As believers, the same truth applies. We are a delight to the Father. Why? Because we're now in the Son. When He sees us, He doesn't see our sinfulness. He doesn't see our imperfections. He doesn't see our sin. Why? Because they've been paid for. They've been taken care of. And just in closing, I want to read this last little verse out of uh, Hebrews chapter 1 because it really speaks to what our standing in Christ is. In Hebrews chapter 1 it says, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last times spoken to us by His Son whom He has appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which the angels did ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says that all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels of God, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God. Clearly above anything else. He's the beginning of all things. He's the creator. He made all things. He sustains all things. He purifies all things. 
And to realize that, you know what? In Him, all deity dwells. And because of that, He's higher than all the other angels. And as His followers, we're included in all that. When Jesus called God Father, He wasn't emphasizing His submission primarily or the ancestry generation. But He was really emphasizing the essence that He's the same. They're the same. The Father and the Son. They're both God. John 5.23 sums it up by demanding that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. See, the key to understanding is you can't worship God unless you worship Him as God, who is Christ. You can't come and worship God if you don't have a relationship with Christ. It's impossible. He's the key. He's the gate. The Bible says He's the way. And we need to apply that to our hearts and, and follow His example for our lives. Father, we thank You for this word this morning. Lord, we pray that You would dismiss us with Your blessing. And Lord, as we close with a song, I pray for anybody here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I ask that You would quicken their hearts to understand their need of a Savior. Lord, it's only by Your grace that we're saved. It's not by coming to church. It's not by praying a prayer. It's not by giving offerings. It's not by doing those things. But it's by bowing our knee to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Acknowledging our need of a Savior, our sinfulness before a holy God. I pray, Lord, that folks would know that that's only a prayer way. Just cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Give me your spirit. Help me live the way you want me to live, Lord. Help me to be dependent upon you. He can do that this morning for you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.